I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When he strode onto the stage 10 years ago, signaling he'd become China's new leader, he was a relative unknown. But now it's clear that he's reshaped the Communist Party, the military and the government so that he's at the top of it all. Some call him the chairman of everything. I think the perceived threat of going into a third world war is perhaps as high as since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. While some of that discussion is centred around Russia, a lot more of it is centred around China. Yet, given all this discussion, it's astonishing how little the West actually knows about China's political system. My name's Cam, otherwise known as Mr Mitchell History on YouTube. I'm a history teacher by trade, and today with PYM Ben, we look at how Xi Jinping has risen to have more power than any Chinese leader has had since Mao Zedong. If you are liking this podcast, a free way that you can help is by spending two seconds to give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You guys have put us at 23 on the history podcast chart for Australia, and so we're really grateful for every review. And we begin today's podcast by actually looking at the strange structure of China's Communist Party. So, gentlemen, today we're looking at the rise of Xi Jinping to be the sole leader of China. We tried to go to China back in 2020. We did. Mm. Unfortunately, we weren't allowed into the country. We had a little bit of a problem. So, I don't know how much personal information you're comfortable sharing, PY, but the name PY comes from a hyphenated surname. Correct, it does, yes. The Chinese government... Wasn't particularly fond of... Was it the government or just the airline? Well... (laughs) Straight to the top. It's all centralised. Well, yeah. Yeah. We we went around the country. Yeah, basically, we were trying to book flights and we had a pretty good deal going through uh, Southern China Airlines or something like that. Guangzhou was going to be our stop? Yeah, Guangzhou, Guangzhou, yeah. And we got to the stage where we were entering our details and like Cam mentioned, my surname has a hyphen in it and it wouldn't accept the hyphen. Mm. Now, we could have easily just put my name in without the hyphen. Nope, I think nope. that would have worked. Had to match the passport. I, I, but... I don't want to lie to the Chinese government. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> my gosh. So, with that, we went for but a different airline. Royal Dutch. 
And we went to Korea, who are very fond of hyphenated surnames. Yeah. So, and I can't wait to go back to Korea. Yeah, to be beautiful honest. airport in in Seoul, Incheon. Is that what it's Incheon, called? Incheon, yeah, a little bit uh, like a little bit away from Seoul. Mm. Yes, and almost perhaps rather fortunate we didn't because we were flying back. Would have been flying back through Guangzhou in February 2020, yeah, which is when it. things were just starting to kick off. We wouldn't have been able to get back to the country at that point. I like that. I like how we're just like, oh, no hyphen. You have lost our business. <laughs> You're lost. Dog eat dog out there. You know, it's, it's the fine margins that so many places do it. Banks here in Australia just enter my name without the hyphen. But yeah. Anyway, do you guys know anything about Xi Jinping? He's a a powerful figure in mm. China. I think that would probably be the extent of how much I know about him. Yeah, I know very little. I know very little about how he came to be where he was. He just seems that for the last, I don't know decade or so mm. thereabouts it's, he's just been a real real part of the furniture and really key in in it seems in china growing to the power that they are today at least as far as i can see it yeah. on, on service yeah if we did a btn episode that would be the narrative <laughs> <laughs> true yes perhaps i'm very westernized in my view of xi jinping but looking keen to learn more so when it comes to the chinese political system it is not a democracy but it has elements of democracy and if we're going to look at Xi Jinping's rise to power, we need to actually understand the Chinese political system. In Australia, where we're recording this, it's pretty straightforward. We have a state government and a federal government. Both are independent of each other. So there's areas, the constitution outlines the division of powers. States have the right to do this. Federal has the right to do this. So state has education. Federal has the army. Basically, in the Chinese system, there's no state and federal. So the state government or the provincial government, which is Chinese versions of states, they answer to the federal government and they are under the control of the federal government. Dominic Perrottet, our premier, is not an employee of Anthony Albanese. In the Chinese system, you are. So what happens is basically at the local level, you vote for a local representative for local council. Okay? Yeah. The local local people's congress. That Then that person elects someone to be a representative at the city congress or the like town area so town or city that is represented by another person that person then appoints someone to represent them at the provincial level so our version our equivalent would be a state but provinces in china Mm -hmm. then the provisional government elects someone to represent the province at the national people's congress otherwise known as the mpc oh i love that (laughs) (laughs) i'm a huge fan of that so following me so far yes so it goes up so imagine... And so are you saying that, say, a group of cities will nominate someone for their province and then... Yes. Is that how that's... Yeah. And then a group of local will nominate someone yeah. for their city yeah. and so on. Yeah. And so... And it's more... Like, depending on the size of the province, it's often more than one... It is more than one person per province. Yeah. So... Is it a... Like, a by population, say? So determine how many... Pro- like, how many per province? Yeah, exactly. And the provinces are also divided much closer to population than Australia's are. So okay. you look at like Shanghai, it's a tiny province. But if you go out to a province like Xinjiang, which is really far in the west of China, it's a huge province. So it naturally falls much more in accordance with population than Australia's does anyway. That's not where the system stops though. So that's not that's not how the system works entirely. The president of the National People's Congress is the president of China. That is largely a figurehead position it doesn't actually contain heaps of power. In recent years, it's become more powerful because it's getting merged with the chairman of the party and it's being merged with the general secretary of the party. But typically, that's not where power comes from. In the same way, the queen doesn't hold 
any real power, theoretically. Mm. Gough Whitlam episode might yeah. say otherwise. <laughs> Begs to differ. Yeah. <laughs> now, what the National People's Congress does is they create laws. It's like Parliament, okay? They can create laws. They can also appoint someone to be on the state council. So they elect an entire other house of Parliament. Imagine the lower house electing the upper house. Mm. So that's kind of how the system works, okay? So the National People's Congress elects the state council. And then the state council, it's like a, a horseshoe. So it then goes down. The state council then elects a provincial council, who then elects a town council, who then elects a local council. So it's such a wow, circular yeah, form okay. of government. And As opposed to in Australia, where we elect the upper and low house from the ground up. Is that yeah, what exactly. you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so Xi Jinping, he was elected at one point, but that's going back to the 70s. And then wow. he's just worked his way to the party. Now, how you get up the party, there's another branch called the Politburo. Now- Communist countries typically have this arm of government. It's the inner circle. Mm -hmm. So basically the state council who's elected by the National People's Congress, if you are listening and you're struggling here, I do have a video on it where I have a diagram to to work you through the process. So just look up how does China's political system work. It's one of the search results there. Basically what happens is the state council elects a Politburo, 25 people. Within that 25, there's another inner circle called the Politburo Standing Committee. That's the inner seven. And so basically, right, at the top of that is the general secretary of the party. Such a convoluted system. There's democratic elements, but it's not a democracy. And that's really important. So we need to think, well, how did Xi Jinping first, if we're going to look at how he consolidated power in the last 10 years, how did he go from the local rep to being number one in the Politburo? That's quite a rise. Now, the Politburo has got another function. It, they're the ones who are in charge of key appointments. So if PY is in the province of Hebei and he's kicking goals, like he's reduced the carbon footprint of that city, he's boosted the GDP per capita, crime rate's gone down massively, like they kind of use a lot of KPIs in their decision-making process, then PY gets a promotion to be the governor, well, the general secretary, but if we were to use an American term governor, an Australian term premier, PY then gets to be the premier of Shanghai and he gets a promotion to a better province. And so... China looks at America like, what the heck? Mm. There is no way... Firstly, Trump would never have made it to the top office in China because yeah. it requires heaps of public service too. Secondly, Obama wouldn't have made it to the top of China. Obama was a senator for like one term or two terms, something really short. And so you've got to work your way for like 30 years mm. to get to the top job top meet, job in China. Meet your KPIs. Yeah. yeah. And have a pretty strong LinkedIn game as well mm. to... Work a room. <laughs> be able to get to the top. So that was basically the blueprint of how to get to the top. It didn't start like that. Initially, Mao was just the revolutionary leader. But since then, we've had enough years of the Chinese Communist Party in power to actually have a pretty well-established footprint of how to get to the top. So the final post you get before becoming the chairman of the party or the general secretary of the party is chairman of the military commission. That's the last cabinet post that you get before becoming the leader, typically. So how did Xi Jinping get to the top? Well... His parents, or his dad, was actually exiled by Mao during the Cultural Revolution. That means nothing to you right now because we don't want to get into mm -hmm. the Cultural Revolution in too much detail. Basically, it's kind of like Mao's purge within the party, but he frames it very much as an inner party revolution. And a lot of key people get exiled from the party that are seen as rivals to Mao's leadership. Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping's dad was one of them. And so Xi Jinping's got a kind of a history of his family's been in politics before. And so in the 1980s, he is the deputy leader for a county called Zhengding. So that is in the province of Hebei. 
So basically, like, we're recording this, as we said in the Whitlam episode, Southern Shire, like being the deputy mayor of Southern Shire Council. That's okay. kind of where Xi Jinping, yeah. Xi Jinping starts. Yeah. He then becomes the leader of the county. So he then becomes the mayor. Then he gets sent to better or more prestigious counties in the province of Fujian. And then he becomes the leader of Fujian. So now he's like a premier or a governor to use our Western equivalent. Of like a, is that a, a state yeah. or a province? Yeah, yeah. province yeah. state. Then he gets to be the leader of a better province called Zhejiang. And then he gets the big provincial post. And I guess what's the big province in China? I think I've said it before. Shanghai. Beijing? Shanghai. Damn. Yeah. Is Beijing the capital? Yeah, Beijing's yeah. capital. So it used to be a place called Nanjing, but then when the communists came to power, they moved it to somewhere within their area of territory, which was Beijing. So Shanghai is considered to be the, one of the most prestigious provinces, usually one of the last you get before you get into the Politburo. So in Australia, right, our Premier Dom Perrottet, mm. you would assume he's not going to end up as the Prime Minister of Australia. Mm. Maybe actually, you hear that Liberal Party's, well, yeah, Liberal Party's yeah. thinking of running Gladys in a federal seat. <laughs> Bold. So Gladys is going to ruin my analogy here if she does end up <laughs> getting a federal seat. And John Barilaro wanted a federal seat at one point. I think he was going to leave. But basically, you can you work your way through the state system or through the provinces, and then you get to the top job. So he is the leader of Shanghai in 2007, and then he gets straight into the Politburo. So he barely gets time to govern Shanghai. The guys that came before him, so particularly a guy called Jiang Zemin, he was two before Xi Jinping, he was also the leader of Shanghai. It's kind of seen as a rite of passage before going on to be the leader or being in the Politburo at least. So he gets into the Politburo, top 25. Mm. He can work a room. And so from 2007 to 2012, Xi Jinping rose to be in the top job. Wow. So, so he's, yeah, again, made alliances. He has numbers. In the Chinese Communist Party Politburo, there's basically a huge division. So Xi Jinping is seen as a Puritan. So he wants to go closer, not entirely, but wants to move more in the direction of Mao. He's like, we've lost our ideological integrity. We've kind of sold out. And then you've got the reformists. And the reformists are people who want economic growth and move more in a model of capitalism. And so basically, there's a huge factional divide in the party. Hu Jintao, who's the leader of China from 2000 and three it's kind of murky area jong has been slowly hands over control to him but definitely from 2004 onwards from 2004 to 2012 he is seen as being in the reformists faction eventually that faction doesn't have them have the numbers so hu jintao they serve two-year terms theoretically as the leader of china at the end of his two years he wanted to give it over to another guy but basically in a factional dispute xi jinping won and Xi Jinping became the leader of China. He had the numbers. So he was given chairman of the military commission. And so he was appointed general secretary of the party in 2012. And then he became the president of China in 2013. And it's at that point that Xi Jinping becomes the leader of China. So you mentioned before the president, is that the same role that you said the president was a bit tokenistic? Yeah. So, but he's also the general secretary or the chairman of which one was he, sorry? Yeah, so he's both. So General Secretary is the one that actually has power. So imagine uh -huh. the Queen also being Prime Minister. Or sorry, yeah. the King being Prime Minister, I should say. So imagine Charles being Prime Minister. His powers would come from being Prime Minister, not being King. Yeah. But King is the figurehead title of the nation. And so that's kind of what happened with Xi Jinping. Yep. And from Deng Xiaoping onwards, the two posts were merged into one. Gotcha. Okay. I'd say it's the most significant um, party congress in 40 years. 
And that's because uh, Xi Jinping's breaking the two-term limit. Uh, he's become China's paramount leader. Uh, collective leadership principles have been pushed to one side. So if we go back to the 1990s, huge empire comes falling down. What are we talking about? People uh, are like, Guam. <laughs> the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union. Soviet Union. So that plays a huge role in shaping the ideology of Xi Jinping. He views it as one of the great tragedies. And basically, from his point of view, he's like, this will not be repeated. Now, background on Chinese communism. Difference between Russian communism and Chinese communism is the Russian revolution was all about beginning the revolution with the urban workers and the factory workers. China in the early 20th century was a different landscape. It was an agricultural society. So Maoism or Mao, Mao Zedong thought was about beginning the revolution with the peasants in the, in the farms. So they're not the they're, they're not identical, but broadly speaking, you can put Maoism and Russian communism in the same category. Hmm. So Xi Jinping, he is a, at a base level a communist, but is happy to make changes to the ideology to make it fit within what he calls Chinese characteristics. So the term was originally coined by Deng Xiaoping, who said basically Deng Xiaoping pursued state-controlled capitalism. So the government regulates everything, but there's free markets and private business. And he said this is socialism with Chinese characteristics. From Xi Jinping's point of view, too much Chinese characteristics, not enough socialism. And those Chinese characteristics actually aren't Chinese characteristics, they're American characteristics. And he's like, we need to make give them actual Chinese characteristics. And we need to move China, not necessarily back towards Mao, because Mao purged his father. He's not hugely sympathetic to Mao. But we need to move it into a direction that is uniquely socialist. So that is a huge factor that shapes Xi Jinping's thought. And where I'm getting this, I can't claim to know Xi Jinping's mind. Where I'm getting this information from is from Kevin Rudd's book, The Avoidable War. Okay. Fantastic book. Would okay. highly recommend reading for our listeners. How did, um, and so was this, how did Kevin get so close to this? Because he was our... Well, not foreign minister, but... Yeah, he was foreign minister. Was he ambassador to China as well? Or? Yeah, so he was an ambassador before he actually took a parliamentary position. He's also ambassador to America now. Yes, so I do remember seeing that. He... And basically, like, he's, he's flew in a Mandarin. There's that great interview. Mm. Oh. I love it. This language! <laughs> With a bit more expletives than that. It just complicates things. <laughs> so he... Yeah, he was a diplomat before taking office. He was foreign minister when Julia Gillard was the prime minister... And basically, he met Xi Jinping a couple of times. He's not claiming to be able to know Xi Jinping, be able to read Xi Jinping's mind, but he's got a pretty good idea, far more so than most in the West commentating on the issue, as to what Xi Jinping is actually thinking. And Kevin Rudd's school of thought is, how can we build bridges between China and the West rather than burn bridges down? Yeah. So he doesn't go as far as defending China on everything, but he will say you need to understand it from their point of view, not from your point of view. So basically, that's, that's the other one. The other big thing that shape Xi Jinping's thought is the GFC. So global financial crisis, it's basically Americans getting greedy. So it's people taking mortgages that they can't afford and banks happily giving them that loan because they can then sell on the loan to another bank and you kind of pass it down and you don't have to deal with the fallout because you've sold that debt to another bank at a cheaper rate. So it's this huge system. Economy crashes really badly. China's economy comes through relatively unscathed. They handle the GFC really well. And so Xi Jinping looks at what America's done and he's like, we're done copying you. After Mao died, we copied your model and we became much more like you. That was a train wreck what just happened. And we're going to move in our own independent direction. And that shapes a lot of Xi Jinping's thought as well. Xi Jinping basically diagnosed the fall of the Soviet Union as changing its political system before changing its economy. 
So they had democratic reforms before capitalist reforms. What what level was Xi Jinping at when that happened? So he was the leader of some of the smaller counties in Fujian okay. when that's all going through. So he's not he's not in a particularly high position yeah. of office there, but he's but he's a pretty canny operator, hence mm. why he got promoted. And so And when is Mao the leader? So Mao's the leader from forty nine to seventy six. Yeah. And so basically that's all going on and Xi Jinping's watching that thinking geez, China cannot go the path of the Soviet Union. And so basically what he sought to do is he's actually, in the last 10 years, wanted to bring China back in the direction of a socialist economy. Now, he can't go back to Maoism. Maoism was a train wreck. Like when practice, there'll be plenty of Redditors who disagree with me. Like I actually have a lot of comments from people defending Mao, but it it gets to a point where it's really tough to defend Mm. a lot of his policies. It created mass starvation. I don't think Mao was this super evil tyrant that just wanted to kill people, see people dead. I think that's a Western invention, but I think his policies didn't actually, well, it's pretty clear his policies didn't actually serve the interests of China. Deng Xiaoping had a much more balanced model. Chinese people often, or hardcore Maoists view view him as selling out, but Mm -hmm. Deng Xiaoping basically brought in all these market reforms in the 1980s. And so when we think about the, the history of China, Xi Jinping wants to, move in the direction of Chinese communism and socialism. He can't go back to Maoism because people won't accept that. They've gotten rich now. He knows that people won't accept it, but he wants to have the government have much more control over the economy. And he is really worried that Chinese people are going to sell their souls for a dollar. And he sees the, he's worried that China's going to effectively sell out and reach a point where it has no national identity. It becomes a country like Japan. So after the war, Japan becomes like Nintendo, Pokemon, and it's this like super <laughs> capitalist society that he's really worried of China becoming. Yeah. And losing its socialist roots. And he seems to have a strong sense of we need to see wealth given equally. So that's kind of the background of Xi Jinping's thought. What he wants to do as well is he wants to bring out the Chinese national identity more. So he's rehabilitated Confucianism. Realistically, like it's 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 a religious it's religious with an asterisk. It's it's an ideology more than anything, but it does have kind of a religious background. And typically, communism is anti-religion because it's seen as well. Marx called it the opiate of the masses. If you mm-hmm. are worried, if you think you've got an afterlife, you're going to demand economic justice less. So, communism is typically very anti-religion. Sorry, and Confucianism is is that because Confucius was just sort of a. A thinker, right? Like yeah. He was a- it's it's like a, it's Eastern religion. So yeah. Eastern religion doesn't have the characteristics of Western Western religion, like a sacred text, like divine, uh, divine omnipotent, singular monotheistic God. And so it had a religious background, and so it was largely shunned under Mao. Xi Jinping wanted to bring it back, and he wants to say, "Hey, the Chinese Empire, like for a lot of history, China has been the dominant empire in the world. We are continuing that rich tradition." And he doesn't want to abolish the past, like Mao was keen to but he wants to actually embed the past with Chinese socialism. And so that's pretty much Xi Jinping's school of thought. So Xi Jinping becomes the leader in 2013. He's effectively at this point, nothing special. We've had Hu Jintao, we've had Jiang Zemin, we've had Deng Xiaoping and we've had Mao. So he's the fifth leader of communist China. And the last two, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, were largely forgettable. And so people are thinking Xi Jinping's just going to be the next one, but he isn't. And he's, in the last 10 years come to have much more power than either of those two, potentially even more power than Deng Xiaoping. So the only rival for power that he's had in the history of Chinese leaders is potentially Mao Zedong. So 
how does Xi Jinping actually consolidate his power? Now, typically what every leader of China has done, so Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, now Xi Jinping, launched an anti-corruption campaign. Mm. <laughs> China has had a history of really bad corruption since the 80s. In a Chinese society, how do you be corrupt? Well, a couple of ways. Number one is you bribe your way to the top of the party. So, because in Western democracy, you've got to get elected to be the leader of the country. If you want to have a high position in Chinese office, you need the Politburo to do your favours. So typically, it's had incompetent people bribe either paying through money or just nepotism and having connections, getting jobs not on the basis of merit. The other way, and this is why that's a little bit more common in the West, is basically bribing the local government representative for zoning permits for whatever business interest you have. So if, mm-hmm. if there's a lot of national park and you want to rezone to build uh, a mm. unit to rent out to people, well, then that's you can slip a bill to the government. Pretty basic corruption. Yeah. Have you guys seen Yogi Bear? I don't know. I've not no, seen Similar story. <laughs> I am, <laughs> I am very curious to see how this comes full circle. Keep going, P.Y. Four is yours. I, don't know, I was hoping that you guys had seen it and you could um, elaborate more on it, but there's just like a local, local uh, governmental figure that's trying to rezone Jellystone Park, of course, the home of Yogi Bear and Boo Boo. Um, so that's kind of the plot the movie takes. Is it similar? I, I've only seen the Family Guy cut away. He's like, hey, boo boo. And then Peter comes up behind him and I'm just. A cricket basket? <laughs> so, yeah, basically that's how corruption. If you've seen Yogi Bear, you pretty much have a PhD in Chinese corruption. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, basically, every leader launches a corruption campaign. And if you actually look at the corruption statistics, I don't have the map available, but if you look at, there's a map from 2010, which is kind of a, a Coropleth map, which is basically. So what's Cora what? Coropleth, which is a color a coloring in map from lo- most severe to least severe. So oh, the darker sure. the blue. And China is pretty much second to like countries like Malawi. And I don't want to slander a particular African nation because I don't know which one it was. I think it might have been Angola. Mm. Have you seen the video of the... It's, the, it's like a clearly fixed football match in a penalty shootout. The Angolan player, and I, I'm very sorry if this is a different African nation. My apologies go out if I'm slandering Angola unfairly here. The player runs up to take a penalty. He kicks it out for a throw in. <laughs> and then he drops to the floor. Like, oh no, I can't believe I missed that. And then this game's like... Brain paid. I think the South African third division had a game where... I think it finished 64-all. Mm. Oh, what a thriller. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it's just oh. like, no one's going to suspect anything oh. here. There's, like, really nothing to see. They just, they just sought to entertain. Yeah. Like, everyone loves goals. It's so rough. It's- so we're obviously saying this from a privileged position in the West where... Where do we? Do we feature on that list at all? Any idea? We've gotten worse. Yeah. Australia's gotten much worse in the last 10 years. We'd still be, like, top three tiers of not having corruption. Mm. And again, it's because it's A, it's more subtle in Australia. True. And B... <laughs> Get away with it. Craftier. We don't need corruption to pay our bills. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of developing nations, corruption is the reason why I can put food on the table. Mm. And so, like, yeah, we laugh at those South African soccer players, but yeah. we're in a much better economic position than they are. So yeah, you can- I don't know how lucrative the South African third division is going to be. So basically, China's got a huge issue with corruption. And so Xi Jinping launches the anti-corruption campaign right away. 2014, 71,000 cases, 23,000 charges for people with uh, corruption. Pretty wow. pretty wide sweeping. The important one is, so in 
China, there's what's called tigers and what's called flies. Flies are low-ranking officials. Tigers are high-ranking officials. Typically, the corruption campaign has never gone for a tiger. Xi Jinping decided to go after a tiger. Wow. His name was Zhou Yongkang. And Zhou Yongkang was from the other faction in the Communist Party. So basically, and it like he was found guilty of taking 130 million yuan in bribes, also with his son. You might ask, like in the Saddam Hussein episode, you asked, was he actually guilty? In the Saddam episode, the answer was no. Mm. In this case, yes. Okay. The reason Xi Jinping got rid of him isn't for the corruption, though. I see. So both can be true at the same time. So Zhou Yongkang, from what we understand, is guilty of corruption, and there's no evidence to suggest otherwise, but it was also a politically motivated attack, and both of those can be true at the same time. So that's the anti-corruption campaign in 2014, and it largely eliminates a lot of Xi Jinping's enemies. And now the reformists are still there and they're still present in the Politburo. And 2022 was actually a huge boost for the reformists because COVID lockdown, the reformists who want economic growth wanted the end of the lockdown. And so they've actually had a bit of resurgence in the last year, but the reformists Mm -hmm. are very much present in the party, but don't have any power, largely because of the anti-corruption campaign. And Zhou Yongkang was taken down. And so now Xi Jinping has the numbers in the Politburo and he's free to basically take China in the direction that he wants to. 2017. So basically what happens, so Dong Xiaoping, he's the guy that took over from Mao Zedong. He basically made a rule where you get two terms as the leader of China, kind of copying America's system. And so he's like, you're in charge for two terms and then you're out in someone else because we don't want another Mao situation. Xi Jinping amends the constitution so that you can have more than two terms as the president. Mm. A little bit suspect. A little bit suspect. Let's remember. Let's but we let's try and be precise here. President does that actually hold any power? No. Yeah. So it's not the general secretary that's being changed. It's the title of being president. Now. Oh, I see. Typically, they go hand in hand. So yep. it was yep. an extension of power. But if we are to be technical, he's just basically extended his term as king of China, not as president, not as functioning leader of China. Gotcha. So. The other important thing that he does is in 2017, he embeds Xi Jinping thought into the constitution. Pretty boss move to like have a mm. whole school of thought named after yeah. you. Mm. PY. How in depth is this thought that he has? Well, is it just like, here's a phrase that kind of represents me? It's and like, so, live and let live. Is live and, that's like actually it. a really good question. It's an evolving canon. So it's not a closed canon. So with every speech that Xi Jinping makes, that gets added to the canon. Oh my gosh! So he's he's just rewriting the constitution with every on the fly. Every my gosh. Yes, and again, well, constitutions are a very Western thing. That's how China views it. It's like, well, we need this to provide some structure, but the whole idea that you're bound to a document that you wrote a hundred years ago just seems stupid to us. Mm. And so Xi Jinping has basically, yeah, made himself an evolving evolving canon. It's kind of I'd probably say a similar situations like the Pope and the Catholic Church. Not everything the Pope says is considered as being scripture because the Pope has the right to interpret the Bible. But when the Pope makes like official edicts, I can't remember the exact title. Any Catholic subscribers we have will be able to correct me on this. But when he makes a papal edict, that's when it becomes canon. And that's when people can, Catholics can refer back to be like, what do we think on this ethical issue? Well, what did Pope so-and-so say in the 1850s? So that's kind of how Xi Jinping thought kind of works. If you were to have... PY thought yeah. embedded into the Australian constitution. Just imagining all the speeches that I've done. <laughs> My year four speech on yeah. why football is the world game. <laughs> yeah. Why we should not be doing homework. Or... 
Oh, all I can think of is Office UK. Money don't make my world go round. I'm reaching out to a higher ground. (laughs) (laughs) That is deep. That could be, yeah, that could, yeah, that could do some damage in the constitution, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Just live, laugh, love is probably what I... (laughs) Live, laugh, love, yes. What I I think of the sort of, you know, three pillars of existence. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think I like have one of those in my house. Oh, wow. My parents' house, I suppose. (laughs) I don't think I'd be... You distance yourself from that. Go to those barley shops, you know, you get and it has the uh the symbol. I don't know what the symbol is. <laughs> I think I'm a bit more authoritarian than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see life in jail for refusing to wave at someone when they let you through in the car. Interesting. Yeah. That grind that goes my gears so much. When I do that, when I thank someone else in the car, I like to do different kind of hand signals each time. So like I might give him a shackers or evolving cannon. Yeah. Thumbs wow. up. Yeah. Like a or little finger blast. Finger guns. Yeah. <laughs> For everyone listening, we just got a lot of different hand signals from P1 that you can't see. So Xi Jinping effectively has his words become an evolving cannon in the Chinese constitution. Now, every leader has their thought. So Hu Jintao thought gets in the constitution. Jiang Zemin thought gets in the constitution. But it's not put on the same par and the same level as Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. Xi Jinping's is. Mm -hmm. And so Xi Jinping is very clearly suggesting I'm on their level. I'm as important a leader as the two great communist leaders that are typically viewed as the most high and the most prestigious in in communist China. So 2018, he's made president for life and two term limits are abolished. The key power, though, is in general secretary. And his term was set to expire in 2022 for general secretary of the party. Do you guys hear in the news? Did you get his position or not? Well, I think he's still I, there. I, so, uh, he's still he's there. Still yeah, he's very much still around. <laughs> he's in until 2027. Wow. Kevin Rudd speculates that he could be in until 2032. So, oh yeah. So it's it's five year term. Sorry, is it as the general secretary? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So he could be the he could be a Putin esque figure in terms of his longevity. Yeah. And so that. In itself, so Jiang Zemin was in for around about a decade. Hu Jintao was in for about eight years. And so now Xi Jinping has eclipsed them and is rivaling Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong to have political power within China and the most political power within China. But there's no use having power if you're not going to do anything with it. So Xi Jinping has also sought to change the economy. And that's what we're going to look at next. The mystery now surrounding tech tycoon Jack Ma. The billionaire founder of China's giant online retailer Alibaba has not been seen in public since October when he blasted Chinese regulators in a speech that drew fire from China's leaders. And Rebecca Jarvis has the story. Good morning, Rebecca. So Xi Jinping, he seems to have two conflicting economic goals. So the American dream, what would you define as the American dream? There's no correct answer here. Just what comes to mind? Just like... Beautiful wife, beautiful kids, three-bedroom house in the suburbs. That's That seems to be the, the picture I see in, in all the Hallmark films. <laughs> Maybe a little holiday little holiday place, destination. House in the Hamptons, perhaps. <laughs> Win the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gossip girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the American dream is very much an individual economic dream. Mm. Like you as an individual are going to try and create a prosperous life for yourself. In China, that's not the case. It's a collective dream. And so the first economic goal that Xi Jinping has for his China vision and the China dream is coming past. So he wants to double the GDP per capita from throughout the 2010s 
from 5k a year to 10k a year. Because remember, West China is still really poor. And so, yeah, you've got your big cities like Guangzhou and Shanghai and so forth in the east, but the west is still really lagging behind. So they achieved that goal, but $10,000 GDP, like $10, a year for GDP per capita, that's still relatively low. So mm. it doesn't pay with America at all. And so basically, that's then the, the next part of the economic dream is to beat America's GDP or rival America's, the size of America's economy by 2049. Wow. Seems like a random year to pick. No, yeah. Isn't that a movie something 2049? I feel like I've that, seen that number before. 2012, the... Yeah. <laughs> the tidal wave uh, coming over the opera house. <laughs> Isn't it... Is it the new Blade Runner, I think, was Blade Runner 2049? Oh, that's right. Um, Blade Runner, Xi Jinping collab confirmed. <laughs> so basically, it's 100 years from when the Communist Party came in power. I see. And so his dream, like, what other country has a dream of, I want to beat you? Like... I want to beat this other country. Mm. Normally, you run your own race when you're setting your goals. Mm. Like, I don't know. I want to have more money yeah. than PYs. Bit, <laughs> bit <laughs> no, on the nose. It's just, you know, comparison. It's just, it's just not what we're on about. Yeah. You know, horizontal comparison does breed discontent. Vertical comparison is not. Is Damn, yeah. that's deep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. But basically, Xi Jinping wants to rival America. And that's a pretty clear statement that we want to come for you as the, the global superpower. And we want to rival you as the leaders of the world. And so basically, there's that, and that's all about economic growth. At the same time, Xi Jinping is worried about China selling out, and he's worried about them selling out in the pursuit of growth. And he wants to create a more socialist society with more equitable distribution. He's worried that Chinese companies are getting too powerful, and he basically wants to buttress the power of Chinese companies. And so defenders of China will say this. Defenders of China will say, in countries like Australia, private companies control your government. They say, in China, the government controls our private companies. I'd rather live in a society run by a government than run by private companies. That's kind of their argument. Mm. And I guess people, that's where Xi Jinping would definitely fall in his school of thought. So he's very worried that Chinese companies are selling out. And so it's weird. He's got mutually conflicting goals, what seems to be mutually exclusive goals. He wants economic growth, but he wants to stop the economic growth of companies and kind of put them in their place and limit their power. And so how's he doing this? Well, basically, he has tried to limit the private sector and increase the power of sector of government-run companies. The issue is that all the growth has come through the private sector. And actually, as Kevin Rudd argues, the state-owned companies are more of a liability than an asset. And they actually drain wealth from the government rather than create wealth. He also wants to limit the power of private companies. And so he's actually tried to put party members on the boards of these companies. Mm. So that what the companies do don't go against the interest of the Chinese Communist Party. And so you've got a party rep to veto anything that's not going to go against your interest. So say you're like, hey, well, basically, we want to create, I don't know, X car. And the, the board rep's like, well, actually, we want to work on limiting our carbon footprint for these reasons, this reason. We want to boost our Tesla industry, China's equivalent of Tesla. We want to boost our EV industry, so I'm going to veto what you're doing. Mm. And so basically, it's kind of like a Senate for a company where there's a government representative to veto anything they don't like. He's also tried to buy equity in some of China's largest firms. And what he's also done is he's pretty much just put a red light to a fair few economic initiatives. So number one, he or his government in 2018 temporarily took control of Anbang Insurance when the CEO was arrested. So that's just, again, like we see in all the time we see in Australia, like people found guilty of corporate crime, mm. a white collar crime. Anthony Albanese doesn't come in and take control of the company. 
So no. let's like <laughs> let's just say, I don't know, Alan Joyce is found <laughs> guilty of, of tax fraud. New guy comes in and yep. Labour Party's not gonna come take control of it. In China that's what happened. Have you guys ever used Alibaba before? Is that the the website where you get kind of knockoff yeah. stuff? I've not used it. I'd be lying if I hadn't browsed that website before, though. Well, anything that's piqued your interest on Yeah, there? I think, like, you see some of the football boots on there, cheap, cheap prizes, you know, especially when you were younger in high school, you always wanted the cool boots and... Yeah, that's all that was holding you back in your professional <laughs> like, career was just those boots. Yeah. yeah, especially when they released like the sock fit. Mm, that so was, that was big. Alibaba is owned by a guy called Jack Ma, a Chinese dude. Um, <laughs> I have heard about that guy. Yeah, yeah. so he, he's, he features in a lot of like TED talks and how do you grow your business talks and that sort of stuff. In 2020, the Chinese Communist Party basically suspended an IPO, so that's a public offering, basically company on the share market. $35 billion IPO for both Alibaba, but also for Ant Group. So the Chinese government basically says, no, nah, you're not putting it on. And from that point on, Jack Ma is pretty much taken out of public life and you don't really see him speaking that often anymore. Uh, did he Did he go missing at one point? Or, bought, was, yeah. or did he just go quiet? Because I feel like I remember seeing his name. So we, we just looked it up then. He went, yeah, actually went missing for three months. So the Chinese government is playing a much stronger role in limiting the power of private companies. So the risk that this runs is if these companies are so powerful and Xi Jinping is worried about their power, the risk that you run is them transferring their capital elsewhere and putting their money in other countries and other countries' bank accounts. So Kevin Rudd in his in his book basically makes the argument that they're walk, Xi Jinping's walking a bit of a tightrope here. He's trying to bring in the companies and retain control over them without annoying them to the extent that they go and just park somewhere else. So basically, he's working with mutually conflicting goals, it seems. Wants economic growth, but wants to limit economic growth for particular companies. Finally, he wants to have a fair amount of social control over China too. So Xi Jinping has basically tried to transform China's social landscape as well. If you want to change the ideology of a country, where do you begin? Well, I think this day and age, surely like like social media or something seems a good option. Seems to control kind of public conscience a bit. Eventually. Yeah, something cultural. Um, Sport. School. 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 Ah. So basically, <laughs> Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping has made all sorts of changes to the Chinese school system. And I want to add this, as a history teacher, I think it's pretty safe to say that every country propagandizes in their education system. Because mm. propaganda, it used to not be a dirty word. It used to just be information with a slant and then it became a dirty word after joseph goebbels weaponized it in the nazi government so basically i think it's fair to say that every country propagandizes in this education system Mm -hmm. the chinese government did a few things to try and retain more strict control over the over education so he cracked down on bourgeois liberalization that was the word he used of schools basically the principles that were taught in schooling system like freedom of speech right to criticise the government and so forth, Xi Jinping basically is the Chinese equivalent of saying they've gotten too woke. <laughs> and he's like, you know, when you see on the News all the time, like, oh, stop all this woke stuff in schools, get back to maths and science. And hard to actually disagree with a lot of that. But when you look at, at China, that's kind of China's equivalent. Stop learning about all these Western principles. Let's look at Chinese principles mm. and let's focus on the maths and sciences. In defence of Xi Jinping... He is the one who has spotted the need to actually 
invest more on creativity. Because he's like, we're basically, we're, we're raising education-wise, we've got all these great robots that are great in the math and the sciences and great at handling tasks. Yep. We're not coming up with people that are great at... Dancing. <laughs> I was going more <laughs> creating battery technology. <laughs> both, are just, both are just as important in a thriving society. How about this? On the uh, New South Wales government skill shortage website... Choreography is listed as an official skill shortage. Wow, Jake really just spots needs. Where yeah. they... So yeah, they need, they need people like you, Jake, that can diagnose issues and come up with creative solutions rather than be able to just be capable at doing tasks. So anyway, judging thing like it's too Western, it's too woke when it's Chinese stuff. He bans foreign textbooks, so that's gone. He bans foreign tutors, not foreign teachers, but foreign tutors. He bans private school. Wow. Oh. All right. Xi Jinping, you've lost me. <laughs> so, so international schools are still okay, but okay. like private tuition and paying like extra to a school for extra tuition and all that sort of stuff, hmm. that's a huge crackdown. Now, that's an assault nice. on Ben's identity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure what to say other than yes, I was. I To be fair, I, I'm a bit of a am, ambi school. I went to, I did go public in, in my my younger years and private in high school. And I, I believe in its value. I believe Cam as well. You're also similar in that you are public through and to, through and through until you, your occupation, in which case you switch sides. I teach at a very non, you would never know it's a private school by visiting the ground. It's not like when you say private school, it has connotations of Trinity and Knox. It's not a, it's not a GPS school. It's a mm. every man's private school. It's, a private school for the uh, yeah. for the common Australian. <laughs> I would like to. <laughs> you can try and stay in touch or you feel you need some bounds. PY has been on a podcast with Scott Morrison. Ben has been at school with Scott Morrison's child. So, yeah. so, yeah. Xi, so Xi Jinping, Ben was quite sympathetic mm. up until this point. I, now. I do recall. Impressive from a public school educated man <laughs> like myself. I do recall. I remember the day very vividly when Scott Morrison became prime minister and one of our teachers at our school exclaimed, wow, we're now a real private school because <laughs> his kids go there. Mm. So, yeah, real real moment of joy. Scott Morrison attended our year six graduation ceremony, Ben, if you remember. I don't remember, no. Oh, um, well, um, no, we sh- shook my hand when I received my award. I'm sure. Wow. He g- um, gave a speech. Ben got docs. Do you remember who shook your hand? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't. He, no. g- he gave a speech at our high school for like the end of year awards. So, cause he's our, lo- he was our local oh, representative. Yeah. He wasn't prime minister at the time. It was just the, I think minister for immigration. Mm. He in front of all of my high school goes on about how he's stopping the boats. This is like, he's, wow. he's just got like a two minute preamble for an academic award ceremony. It's just like, well done, like, well done guys. You came second in French. You got big things waiting for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, like, that's basically what his tagline's supposed to be. But, he goes on about how he's stopping the boats. And we had a Labor principal at the time who, like, yeah, part of Teachers Federation, most public school teachers would mm. probably lean Labor. And, yeah, basically just kind of gets up and blasts him about refugee in front of... So this is... I just signaled to PY because we went to the same high school yeah. who the principal was. And yeah. ScoMo's left with egg on his face. Speak is much better at doing the award ceremony. Yeah, he was than, great. He yeah. just talked about return and earn and, <laughs> like... <laughs> So, to come full circle, Xi Jinping basically slows down private tuition heaps because it's seen as foreign interference. And it's like, we don't get to have control over the outcomes. Also, at the same time, he's all about uh, equality and equity. 
So every child deserves the same level of education. And so he massively slows down the private education sector. When it comes to religion, Maoism was obviously quite anti-religion because of it being an early evolution of Marxist thought in China. And remember, communism views religion as the opiate of the masses. That softened a lot under Deng Xiaoping and basically it was more turning a blind eye to religion. In the last 10 years, there's been an explosion of Protestant Christianity and it has ballooned throughout China. So basically like tripled, quadrupled. It's hard to get exact figures. Xi Jinping, he knows that he can't completely outlaw religion. That's never going to work. People have a religious impulse. And so what he does is he tries to nationalize the church. Oh. Very tough institute. It's not nationalizing the mines. Yeah. It's not nationalizing healthcare. It's nationalizing religion. And that gets a lot harder. And so basically, he puts all these principles out there that churches need to conform to. And if you don't, we'll knock down your church. That's kind of Xi Jinping's model for controlling mm. religion. What's happening in Christianity is Protestant Christians largely haven't played ball with Xi's demands. And they've continued to gather how they want to see fit. And they view themselves as having responsibility before God rather than before Xi. And so what she's done is he's basically tried to demolish unauthorized churches and it's forced Protestant Christians to go into house churches. And so a lot of their church services are from the house rather than mm. an organized building. He, in 2019, basically kind of said that, this sorry, firstly 2016, then again in 2019, he said, your church is not to act outside of the scope of the nation. And if you don't, we're going to knock your house down. A whole other issue. This is a separate podcast issue and this could get us canceled I'm just going to quickly discuss the Uyghur Muslims. So, Mesut Ozil. Yes. Didn't think he'd be getting a shout out in the podcast. <laughs> Where's he now? So, basically, there was a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Muslim with a Turkish background who plays for the German national team. And a lot of the circumstances around his retirement was he felt unsupported by the German FA and the German fans in talking about the Uyghur Muslims, who he has affinity with because he's a Muslim himself. They're basically a group in West China that are Islamic and they kind of occupy Central Asia. They would not call themselves Chinese. They would call themselves as belonging to Turkestan. So basically, long-standing conflict between the two. Chinese governments had a pretty brutal crackdown. In response, the Uyghur Muslims have committed acts of terror. And that's not a controversial point. I've made a video where you document from 2008 to 2012, the amount of Uyghur terrorist attacks on Han Chinese people massively increases. So basically, Xi Jinping has had a huge crackdown on the Uyghur Muslims and he's increased security personnel. The previous Chinese policy was to try and boost their economic conditions so that they won't feel the need to make these attacks. That was kind of the rationale at the time. Xi Jinping said, that's stupid. We need to basically let them know who's boss and we need to kind of seriously control how they live. What comes into that is the idea of concentration camps. And when I say concentration camps... Don't think Nazi extermination camps. That's the most twisted and bastardized form mm-hmm. of concentration camps, but it's a re-education camp. Yeah, yeah. Where effectively there's been a BBC documentary on this. There's been, there's been plenty of coverage on China and its Uyghur Muslims where the Chinese government has effectively attempted to re-educate and culturally cleanse Uyghur people from their culture. The Chinese government's rationale is no, we're trying to de-radicalize them because we've seen a whole bunch of radical Islamic attacks in the early 2010s. That in itself is a really frosty situation right now. There's no clear way forward. And I think the best way to describe it is a conflict. A lot of people would use the word genocide. 
I'm hesitant about using that word genocide because because of the huge implications that it has. So Australia's called it a genocide. New Zealand hasn't. And I'd probably mm. more align more closely with Jacinta Ardern's stance than Scott Morrison's stance at the time. So basically, that's been a huge, tricky situation for China in dealing with its different religious groups. It's a secular, atheistic model by design, but China's got a lot of religious people. And that number is only increasing. So how does the Chinese government move forward? Well, it doesn't have a clear path forward yet. For pragmatism, you would think you would probably suggest that China's got to get a bit more sympathetic with religion. The final one I want to talk about is social credits. Ah. Do you know anything about social credits? I've seen a lot of memes about effectively how good your standing is in society based on, I don't know, the things you do, where you work, perhaps. It's kind of like, I think, what's the, have you guys seen the Black Mirror episode? I've seen that episode, yeah. Yeah, I've seen bits. Where the, what's the rating system called? Oh, it was a long time since I watched I know, it. Community's got meow meow but, beans, which, but <laughs> you just—I don't—we just give people like an upvote or something like a star, or yeah, and that <laughs> impacts your access of like where you sit on flights. And yeah, yeah, it's quite so. Yeah, set in a futuristic dystopia. It's not quite like that. It's not identical, mm. but the theory is that it's a way of regulating behavior. And initially, it's uh, it's applied more to criminal activity rather than political activity, mm. but there has been a view within the party to extend it to political dissent. So if you are outspoken or an outspoken critic of Xi Jinping, you'll get a lower social credit score. Mm. If, but that's also applied to like, if you jaywalk, if you jaywalk, you lose points in your social credit score and that impacts your access accessibility to internet, to bank loans and so forth. Well, in, in defense of Xi, that pop, that policy did not start under him. It started back in 2009 when Hu Jintao was the leader and it was on a trial basis. Mm. It's been since then been expanded, but we don't know heaps about the social credit policy. And a lot of what we think we know is kind of exaggerated through memes. And okay. so, yeah, I've had like, I've had plenty of videos before where I, cause I try and give a pretty balanced view of China. I don't claim to have the balanced view, but I, I try to try and explain both sides of the story. A lot of commenters have said like, women low social credit score, and that's to something to that effect. And so it, it is a real thing, but a lot of we don't actually know heaps about it. And how much of it is being used in China right now, I'm not sure. I feel something like it feels like something to be afraid of in when if we're thinking about it like the Black Mirror view, it seems rather kind of dystopic. But yeah, as you said, who can say what, what actually is going on? Maybe we lost some social credits when PY tried his hyphenated last name. True, yeah. Uh, we, or maybe we didn't have enough to yeah. get the hyphen in. They, that was just their way of blocking us. Uh, gentlemen, before we wrap up, any more for any more? Um, I did have one, going back to your education point, because graduating from, from Sydney Uni, as I, as I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> um, Real like, scratch to get that one in there. <laughs> such a huge export for that uni is education to Chinese students. Yes. And same with UNSW, sort of the two biggest unis in Sydney, yeah, how does that sort of fit into China's view on education? Because there's no doubt that students would come over here and hear views that are radically different to mm. what they're being told in Chinese schools. It's slowed down since Xi's come to power. So typically there was a huge boom in the 2000s because it's like, let's train our people up at the best academies and best um, education facilities to have them return to China and be productive. Mm. Since Xi's come to power, it has slowed down to an extent. COVID Sorry, as in... Slowed, what slowed down exactly? The number of Chinese students coming to Australia. I see. It's, 
it, like COVID's also the other big factor that this, that's completely impacted international students. I did have a, I had a mate who went to Sydney who said they saw a Hong Kong demonstration and they saw a student take out WeChat and film it mm. and kind of like sent it to another person on WeChat. Mm. That in itself, like I've heard similar stories. That in itself could just be sending to a mate in Australia, but it does seem to carry a level of high sympathy towards the Chinese Communist Party. Like WeChat is effectively, it's the tool used by the Chinese Communist Party to get your data in the same mm. way that Facebook is used by private companies to get your data. Like I'm not chastising China for doing what it's doing. Everyone does it. So from anecdotal experience, there's still a high level of sympathy towards it. I'd still say China very much believes that Western academies are helpful for training up its people to be engineers. It's starting to lose faith in Western academies from all accounts because it's basically gotten too too woke. Um, mm. And so it's also slowing that down. That's also, that seems to be slowing it down a lot. I did go to uni with a Chinese student. She did not want to be a teacher, but she was just made to get a degree. And she really struggled in the classroom and basically was like, oh, well, I'm already rich in China. I'm just going out here to get my degree and go back home. So it is also a bit, bit of a big cultural thing as well. That families mm-hmm. view Australia as a land of opportunity to come back and be prosperous. Yeah, no, interesting episode. Uh, much less history that it's happening right now. Yeah, history unfolding as we speak. It is. And it still seems like there's a lot of unknown of what's going on. And again, I guess similar to the to the Saddam Hussein episode last week, it was there is a lot of Western narrative that you've got to sort of sift through to really get to the facts of what's going on here. So super interesting. I think a quote that I really love from Friendly Geordies is don't view it as right versus wrong. View it as two superpowers competing against each other. Mm. I think mm-hmm. that's, what, that's exactly what it is. So if Australia was to fall under the influence of China, then, and everything we said was super anti-America, I would like to think in that situation, I'd be the one being like, no, here's the redeeming aspects of America. There's two sides. There's like, it's a cliche. There's two sides to every story, but in this case, it really is. And it is a new cold war. And I think it really is important to actually understand China, say, China invades Taiwan and America declares war and Australia declares war and is encouraging all men from the ages of 18 to 29 to sign up to fight in the war. You don't want to get caught off guard. Mm. You actually want to know what you think of China and Taiwan and these issues rather than waiting for a girl to give you a white feather at the pub like in World War I. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, be warned. We'll finish with that. (laughs) That's lunch. So, there we have it plus 10 social credits for us, it seems. Or maybe minus 50. I don't really know what the Communist Party would make of that pod. One easy way to support the podcast is on Patreon. For just $1.50, you can get access to all sorts of bonuses, such as the podcast Discord, extra content, face reveals, and your choice of any imposter for videos on the main channel. If you're short on cash, you can support us for free by giving us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next week, things get really crazy as we look at Idi Amin's reign in Uganda.